John. We're going to begin our study, our journey through this book, through this account of a man who was deeply loved by Christ and who deeply loved Jesus. So it's through his eyes, it's through his pen, though we also know that it's ultimately through the pen of the Holy Spirit that these words are given to us to encourage us and to teach us about Jesus Christ. So as we begin our series, let's consider who John was. John was the son of Zebedee, not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is different than this John, two separate Johns. This John that wrote this letter, this this narrative, was a brother of James, who is not James the author, okay? James the author was a brother, half-brother to Jesus Christ the Lord. This man was a brother to James the fisherman. They were both professional fishermen as they were uh, going about their father's business of being a fisherman, Zebedee, when Christ called them, they were the third and fourth disciples that he called to himself after he went away in the wilderness to pray for 40 days. He comes out, he sees James and John and says, come be fishermen with me. Come be fisher, fishers of men. They drop their nets and it says that they immediately followed Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples that was led by Jesus Christ, that lived with Jesus Christ, that talked, dialogued with Jesus Christ for over three years. He had a nickname by many, referred to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This was a title. No one knew him as intimately on this earth as John, the author of this book that we are about to journey on. He's the one that's recorded that reclined on Jesus, that leaned on Jesus during the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. He was the one that, along with Peter, ran to the tomb that was, it was heard that it was empty. He runs ahead, so he's a little faster than Peter, so we know that John might be a quick runner, okay? He runs to the tomb, and he is overwhelmed with the resurrection, and then here comes Peter running past John through the tomb, looking around. Yeah, it's empty. Nothing's here. And then John steps through and sees the empty tomb. This man saw Jesus. This man saw the crucifixion. This man saw the empty tomb. And at the crucifixion, he was the only disciple to still stand with Christ. He was the only disciple who was found to be next to his Christ's earthly mother, the the Virgin Mary, at the foot of the cross, where Jesus from the cross says, Mary, your son, John, your mother. John was a big deal to Jesus. He deeply cared for this man. He placed a lot on him when he commissioned him to take care of Mary. He was the one who... After the resurrection that he saw as they were fishing, he saw a man that looked like Jesus on the shore that was preparing fish for breakfast. And he cries out, is it you, Lord? He says, it's Jesus. And that's when Peter hurls himself out of the boat and goes and meets Jesus. John is the one who recognized him out of all the other disciples. 
along with Peter and James, John himself, these three were pillars of the early church, as you can read about in Galatians 2, 9 and 10, as they commissioned Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. These men were deeply respected because they walked with Jesus. And John himself remained with Jesus. And Christian tradition holds to belief that he died of natural causes, unlike any other disciple. All the other disciples were martyred. John died of natural causes, we believe, around age 94. His original audience that he sent this letter to, written from Ephesus in the late first century, it was to Jews and to Gentiles. It wasn't specifically to the Jewish nation. It wasn't specifically to those who can now be in Christ. They can now have the inheritance that the Jews only had. Now it's for both. He wrote it to both audiences that made up the Greco-Roman world. He focused on Jesus Christ, his life, and the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul, I mean, Paul, this is what John's letter is mainly about, is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And he focuses specifically here on the last week of Christ's life. Two-thirds of the book that we're going to be diving into is the last, the last week of Christ's life before the cross. Fascinating. Inside the life of Christ, he tries to unpack three things as often as possible. What Jesus did, what Jesus said, and how others responded. All through his letter, all through his letter, what he did, what he said, and how others responded. He's wanting so desperately for us to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the very Son of God, and that it is by believing in him by faith we can be saved and have eternal life because of the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. This was his purpose, his theme. He also wanted to convince his readers that, that they must believe in Jesus Christ and be identified with Jesus Christ and respond to him as Lord in order to have life. At the very end of his book, John 20, verse 30 and 31, he, he says this, and this is basically his objective for writing this. So we're looking at the end, his summary, as we begin. And here's how he starts this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, here's his purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not the last name of Jesus, Okay. Christ is a title referring to Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is deity, that he is the son of God, that he is the coming king. It is him. He is the one we've been looking for, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing this, you may have life in his name. This is his purpose. So now knowing this, we can begin through those lens, understanding the audience, the time, the setting, the people, his purpose, who he was as an author. Now let's start, okay? Let's pray and we're going to jump into John 1.1. 1, 1. Lord, uh, Lord, you know that I need you uh, physically right now to help me. Uh, Lord, you know that we all need you. 
uh, spiritually, emotionally, in order to be able to focus on you, in order for you to be able to speak to our hearts. Lord, would you open us up to this truth, Lord, uh, about you. Lord, would we see you a little bit more clearly because of our time together in, in the Word of God? And would that knowledge not just make us fat spiritually, but may that propel us into mission? Would that propel us to speak as John, Lord, telling of Jesus, the Messiah, the one that gives hope, the true King, Son of God? Lord, cause the distractions to cease. Allow us to focus and pay attention. Teach us, Father. In spite of who I am, in spite of my limitations, in spite of my sickness, in spite of my lack of intelligence on so many things, would you come in and be the rabbi, the teacher? And would you teach us what it is that you want us to know today? Every single one of us, knowing and believing that no one is here on accident, that you have everyone here on purpose. Would that reality cause us to pay attention to what it is that we're here for? In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen. Amen. All right, John 1, we're going to start in verse 1. In the beginning, does that sound familiar? In the beginning, of course, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark starts his gospel by referring to the Old Testament prophets and saying this is the Jesus that has been talked about in the generations before. John starts his gospel, his narrative, by going before the prophets. He goes before even creation. He wants us to understand that the hope that is in Christ is founded before anything else other than God himself. In the beginning, in the beginning of all things. In the beginning was the Word. It's a capital W. Referring to a person. Jesus who was with God, yet distinguishable from God, enjoying a friendship and an intimate relationship with God, the Father. And this word here in the Greek is logos. It is God's powerful activity in creation, in revelation, in deliverance and redemption and in judgment. This is referring there in Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let the waters be separated from the land. And God said, let the earth bring forth life and trees and the flowers. And let, the, let there be animals and let there be fish in the sea. Let there be man. Let there be those words. That powerful creator, that agent of creation was Jesus Christ. He wasn't born 75 years ago, like this is latter part of first century. He wasn't just born then. He was before all things. And what we have here today was created by him because in the beginning he was with God. He, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
This is a, a powerful picture here of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Trinity, the Godhead, the three in one. The Trinity is, is the fact that God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this one God existing equally and fully in these three persons has existed together in perfect harmony throughout all eternity past and will so in all eternity future. Each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit shares equally the fullness of God. And each person of God has specific roles in regards to our relationship with him and how it's made possible and how it exists. Each one is responsible for different roles. For instance, the Father. He's our perfect, loving, just Father who adopts us and makes us his children through Christ. Through Jesus Christ, the Son who was sent into the world as a man, fully God, fully human. He came to live the perfect life that was required by us. So that we can now be considered God's children. And we could never live this perfect life on our own. So he did it for us. And he died the death that bore the punishment of our sin and our disobedience that we deserved. And as a result of his work on the cross that brought us our redemption. So now we can be looked upon from the Father as cherished, as, cherished, as children. He sends the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, our helper. So the Holy Spirit is the power of God that is with us, teaching us God's will through the Bible, convicting us of our sin, making us more like Jesus, and empowering us for ministry and for mission while we're here. This is our triune God. He's speaking to this. He's alluding to this fact here in John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So you see they're distinct, but they're together. And to summarize this fact, we have verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. He wants to state it once more. I believe for emphasis. Anytime in Scripture something is stated more than once, it's for emphasis purpose. Okay? That's what it's there for. Verse 3. All things were made through him. Again, reiterating the fact of his power. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We see that Jesus Christ is the source of life and light. He's the source of, of truth, of knowledge, of understanding, of purity, of morality. This is our Jesus. Genesis 1, 2 through 3. says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the of the waters. It was darkness over all the deep. And as part of the creation, the very first thing that's created is light. Let there be light. Jesus Christ is that agent to create 
the light in the beginning where there was nothing but darkness. And here's where John's going, and this is beautiful. Just as he created from darkness and void, the, the, the Hebrew word there is bara ex nihilo, to create from nothing, just like he did that in Genesis 1. John says in John 1 that he has come to recreate where there is darkness in the hearts of men because of our sin, to recreate, to bring the light. And he's coming as a light himself, the light, the source, to create lights for him. This is beautiful. As, as, as a writer, this is amazing that he has this knowledge of the Old Testament to be able to, to have such a correlation. It's such a beautiful picture. As much as we possibly can, and we are so limited in how we can do this, consider darkness and void and nothingness in the beginning. And then let there be light. Let there be water. Let there be form. Let there be a sphere. Have have land and water and trees, animals, fish, just happening. Man, amazing. Let the, let the night be separated and have a moon to keep it lit and have a sun to keep it during the day. And let's keep it this far away from the sun to keep it at a temperature that's livable and can, can sustain life. All these things are happening. In the same way, with the same power, and with the same amount of it being a miracle, he looks down at us and redeems us out of our darkness and brings us out of our death and our decay and breathes life into us. And he speaks into our heart, let there be life. Let there be light. This is our Jesus. Amen. Absolutely. And he moves on past his cosmic view of eternity past and, and how things are created to right here in the now. As he opens up, Verse 6. One more thing on that last part of chapter, I mean, verse 5. Such powerful hope that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is hope. This speaks to me in my suffering. This speaks to me in my sickness. This speaks to me in, in anything that I might face in this lifetime. That ultimately, light wins. Ultimately, darkness is destroyed. It has not overcome the light. Rather, the light was sent into the darkness, transforming the darkness. There wasn't light at the beginning, and then darkness kind of overwhelmed it. It was all death and dark, and light overtook it. That is great hope. That's great hope, church. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This, again, is not the author. This is John the baptizer, John the Baptist. <clears throat> he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, that all who do believe will believe through him, through the light. He was not the light. And I think that he might be dispelling here a, a heresy in the early church where John had disciples of his own. John was... A prophet, and he had followers that, that, that lived with him, that lived life with him, and that wrote for him, and that, that were his disciples, essentially. And he was perhaps 
wanting to end this possible heresy by saying, he, is, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. He wanted to be able to clarify here, this John is a great guy, I'm respecting him, but he is not Jesus. He is just a proclaimer of the one to come. He's talking about the light that's on its way, okay? This is his role, because there is one Savior, there is one hope, there is one ultimate light. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone, that, in other words, anyone who has the light has been enlightened by this one. This true light was coming into the world. And this is pretty grim here as he unpacks this, okay? He was in the world. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And this speaks to our depravity. This speaks to our rebellion. This speaks to our darkness, the ones that have been waiting on him, specifically the Jewish nation, were waiting. And they were gathering weekly to celebrate the coming of the Messiah. And yet they didn't recognize him as Messiah. They were waiting on him. It's not like there was, that they had forgotten that there was a coming Messiah one day. I mean, this is their life. They memorized the Old Testament in order to be able to recognize more fully the Messiah when he comes. They give their lives to study the coming Messiah. And when he came, they did not know him. It's amazing. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him as the Messiah, as the Christ. But then here's hope. But to all those, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is our new identity. These are the ones who were, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, not even by the will of man but of God. God calls them to be called and become children of himself, children of God. He is the source of this life. He is the source of this new identity. Consider 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. All things have become new. The new has come. This is speaking of this new life, the new hearts, the new desires, the new hopes, the new identity, the new future, the new purpose because of Christ through the will of God himself. One of the most beautiful passages in our Bible is right here, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, not just coming with truth and law, and you failed, deal with it, but he's handling us with grace, with such balance that we are so <laughs> unfamiliar with. 
We lean hard on truth or hard on grace. That balance is so hard to keep. He came with grace and truth. The reconciler, the redeemer, the justifier, Jesus Christ. (coughs) And this word dwelt here, this word dwelt is really a a term that's more like tabernacled. So when when he said this, when he would write this and, (coughs) excuse me, and people would read this, they would think to the Old Testament where they had the tabernacle where the Holy of Holies was, where, where God's presence existed. And so when he said that, that, that now Christ has come here and put on human flesh and tabernacled among us, he's speaking to the fact that there's no more need for priests. There's no more need for sacrifices. There's no more need for the separation of the veil to keep us from the presence of God. But he has come to be with us, to be our friend. He took as the original missionary... Jesus took on flesh to contextualize with us, to live and speak truth to us. And we didn't recognize him. We killed him because of it. And every one of us is responsible for that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's because of our sin that he went to the cross. And there is no veil. There is now a friendship because Christ lived a perfect life that we could not live as our representative. So now we have hope. He paid on the cross the penalty for our sin and for our darkness. And and not only that, but he achieved not only his substitutionary death, he achieved the sinless life. So he paid for our darkness and he lived as light so that now we have our darkness paid for and his light is now our light. This is the beauty of the gospel. And of course, John knew that he had seen the glory of the Son of God. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Very specific. He saw him live a perfect life. He saw him die the death that he died. He saw him beat death through the resurrection. He saw him at his transfiguration when he ascended to the Father. Yeah, he saw some glory. He knows that Jesus is powerful. He has seen it with his own eyes. And he's telling us and the world about him. It is when we see clearly the gospel. We see that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, that we are all living in darkness and separated from God by our sin. We're alienated from God. We're enemies of God. We're haters of God. We're children of wrath. We're spiritually dead. So we are in this category because we're apart from Christ. But there's hope in Christ. What these verses show us is that whenever light shines in the darkness, there's also darkness that does reject the light. And we must be in the light as he is in the light so that we can have fellowship with one another and fellowship with him. We know that Jesus, from this passage, we know that Jesus is God, that he is divine. We know that he is eternal. We know that he is creator of all things. 
We know that Jesus is a source of spiritual life and light. He is not a curse word or a simple homeboy that pop culture makes him into. That Jesus that pop culture produces is absolutely so easily ignorable. That is not our Jesus. John wrote these things so that we could grasp the cosmic magnitude of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ that you cannot ignore. The truth is that we've never even had a thought that is worthy of Jesus. Our best, most worshipful thoughts are still not worthy for Jesus. He is that epic. Jesus is the creator of all things. He is the source of life and light. He is the sustainer of our existence. He is our redeemer. He is our healer. He is our friend. He is our refuge. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our strong tower. He is our deliverer. He is our true hope. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the King of all the earth. From eternity past to eternity future, He is the authentic Messiah that needs to be embraced and worshipped as such. He is God in the flesh. He is God. This is our Jesus. And John says, this is what's so crazy. Not that He created all those things. Though that is a big deal, John says that Jesus moved towards us. That is what is crazy about John 1, 1 through 14. In his splendor and his holiness and his power, he chose to move towards us. Absolutely unthinkable. We see here his magnitude and yet his nearness. We see here his transcendence and yet his humility. This Jesus can be worshipped. That God is worth living for and dying for. Notice one more thing in closing here. John says that all who did receive him became his children. He didn't say all who deserved him became his children. It's all who would simply receive him. Jesus just wants you to be open and willing. He's always looking for the undeserving who simply don't mind being loved and approved and accepted. That's all he's looking for. So my question this morning is, is that you? Are you undeserving? Do you want to be loved and accepted and approved? That's why Jesus moved towards us. Would you see him as Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God? And would you embrace him as such and live as if that's true? Would you embrace what it means to be called a Christian? Again, not what our pop culture says a Christian is. Not what most of the church says a Christian is. But the true bride of Christ, an authentic Christian, which I hate to clarify it that way, but we have to. 
one who really believes in Jesus and acts as Jesus, that is actually patient and kind. Christian, that would be like Christ. Those who are outside of Christ, would you come near to Jesus and see that, that he's coming near to you, that he has moved towards you in your direction already? It's why you're here. You're not here by accident. You're here because he loves you. And he wants you to be open and willing to trust him and receive him. He didn't say go work really hard. He didn't say go deserve me first. Just receive it. Just, and we hate receiving gifts. We like the end result. We hate the process of humbling ourselves to receive something. So I understand that it's hard just to receive. That's a tough part of the gospel. It really is. Just taking, because we want to work so bad. If we're going to be loved this much, we want to be able to kind of earn that, make us feel like we deserve it. That's, you can't. You just got to be needy. Say, I'm open, I'm willing. Just, I'm here. I receive you. And then watch Christ create in you this new life. Just like in Genesis 1. Not born of flesh, but born of the Spirit. It'll change your life. And that's the truth. And this is our Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you please continue to work in our hearts, in our midst. Lord, thank you for the time spent in your word and just for it being true. Just for this being a hope that we can truly trust in. Lord, uh, would you be with those who are considering you, who are contemplating the real Jesus moving towards them in their direction? Lord, would you give them the faith to trust in you and believe you? Would you give them humility and boldness and courage to be able to come to, to me or Pastor Jacob or really anyone who makes up the Axis body? here at the Axis Church. And, and would you just encourage them and give them the boldness and courage needed and the humility there in order to confess, yeah, I feel like Jesus is doing something in me and it's kind of confusing. It's kind of scary. I don't really know what's going on. I'm starting to care and feel like I haven't cared and felt before. <clears throat> and I just need to talk through this. Would you give them that conversation? Would you make that conversation possible? And would that lead to such an incredible transformation of your power in their lives that it causes for a celebration? Lord, move amongst us now as you have from the beginning. In Christ's name, amen.